0: In this session, session three, we are looking at chapter two, which is speaking about relationships, the importance of relationships, especially during uncertain times. Now, during the pandemic, when people have been working from home for the last two years, I'm sure you'd have heard a lot of cases of pressure at home, pressure at home. Husband and wives are at home, children are at home, each one wants their space, space is not available, tensions are running high. There have been a lot of pressures in relationships, interpersonal relationships at home. And also there's been pressures maybe from the work front, even though you're not at work, the boss is still after you. You have to still to submit you know, your requirements at a particular deadline. Or sometimes, you know, it's not just a nine to five job anymore. It's a 24 seven at any time, you know, you're still on call. That is putting a lot of pressure. And that as a result, there has been strained relationships. Also, when you're thinking about the church meeting together, because there has been no physical meeting, oftentimes relationships have been very distant. You have not really interacted much. And also, Because this has all been online, a lot of people have just spent time doing a lot of online sessions, online meetings, you know, uh, working at different different church services as it were, and as a result they're having issues now saying, hey, that is better, this is better, you know, And I can do it any time that I want to, you know, why should somebody else tell me that this is the time that you should be worshipping? So these are all pressures that have come along during this period of uncertain time. And Paul writing in this particular second chapter, now we must say that yes, this book is about joy, you know, this book is about joy, but this book is also about the importance of unity to maintain joy. Remember, we said the last chapter speaks about two individuals having problems within the church. They were not, you know, sort of in good terms. And Paul says, live in harmony, live in unity. So this morning, our focus is going to be on the importance of relationships during these uncertain times. It is relationships, strong relationships that. And I help you to sustain and be strengthened during uncertain times. But it is also during these uncertain times, with the pressures being high, relationships can also break down. So let's look at this chapter this morning and look at some lessons that we can learn. Remember, unity is a precious gift of the Spirit of God, and it has to be prized, it has to be sought, and it has to be guarded at all costs and when it is lost it is very hard to regain when it is lost it is very hard to regain and that's what satan would love to do break up unity break up friendships break up relationships keep people distance to one another don't let them get along too closely because he knows that a united church is a very powerful church okay so first of all let's look at the Resources for unity that God has given to us, the resources for unity. In verse 1, it says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit. And purpose. If you notice in this first verse, we have four if statements, four if statements. But these if statements are not expressing a doubt, okay, they are not expressing a doubt. In fact, in Greek, this particular grammatical form actually expresses a certainty. Basically, it's saying if such and such thing is true, then I know that this is also true. What are the things that Paul is saying, other resources? He says, if you have any encouragement by being united with Christ, are you united with Christ? Are you in him? He says, yes. So if that is so, then you need to have unity with one another. Then he says, if any comfort from his love, does God love you unconditionally? Yes. So you love others unconditionally. If there's any fellowship with the spirit. You are able to communicate with God, that link is kept open if there is no sin in your life. Similarly, in your relationship with one another, keep the communication lines open. If there is any blockage, clear it up so that there could be communication and fellowship. If any tenderness and compassion, tenderness and compassion. How does God treat you? Does he treat you harshly or does he treat you with compassion? Does he, you know, put out his arms to, you know, welcome you when you come back to him? You know, or does he say, hey, this person is too much. He's gone away far, far from me. No, God welcomes us. God has compassion on us. So he says, if this is true of what God is doing for you, he says, hey, that's the reason why you should also be doing it for So Paul is saying, it shouldn't be such a great thing to ask that you maintain the unity that God has given to you. So it is not as if God is saying, if you do this, then I will bless you. What God is really saying here in this passage is, this is what I have done for you. And that's the result. This is my expectation of you. So relationships, strengthening of relationships in the Christian fellowship is not an option. It's a requirement in the light of what God has done for us. If this is true, if this is what God has done for us in Christ, then Paul says, hey, you should also be working for unity. Do not let anything come in the way of fostering unity in the fellowship. Secondly, in verse 2, he gives us some requirements for unity, and you have this threefold requirement. The first one, he says, is a shared mind, a shared mind. The Anavi says, be like-minded, be like-minded. The message translation says, agree with one another, agree with each other. Being like-minded touches what we really believe in. So unity begins with a shared statement of faith, okay? That is what unites us, okay? Unity begins with a shared statement of faith. When I say a shared statement of faith, the basic doctrinal beliefs, you know, that is what is the foundation for our unity, okay? So that's the shared mind. Then you have the shared heart where he says, having the same love. Yes, you believe it in your head, okay? These are the things that we are common with each other. And then he says, now transfer it to your heart. If this person belongs to the same family, they may not think the same way as we do in all matters, but on the basics, there's a shared mind. So share that love, share that love to know that they are part of the family, welcome them in the family. And the third one is a shared soul, where the NIV puts it across and says, being one in spirit and purpose, being one in spirit and purpose. In other words, your goal, your function, your purpose for existence is the common one for the glorifying of God. Translation says, be deep-spirited friends, be deep-spirited friends. The Greek could literally mean be same sold. Be same sold. And Eddie Robertson says that when we have this kind of unity, we will be like clocks that strike at the same moment. Clocks that strike at the same moment. If you've gone to a clock shop and the alarm is set for a particular time, you know, clocks should strike at the same time. That is unity, isn't it? If we are sitting down over there at the t- now in the, uh, the shop and you find one clock ringing at one time, two minutes later, another clock is ringing, hey, see, that's not unity, that's not unity. So when you're speaking about unity, Paul is saying we must have the shared mind believing the same basic doctrines, the shared heart recognizing, hey, they belong to the same family. In one family, not all of them are the same, isn't it? They're all different, but they are part of the same family. So that's the reason for the unity and the shared soul. We are in it together. We have a common factor. We have a common factor. In Matthew 18, 19, Jesus reminds us where he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name or agreed on earth regarding anything, the Lord says. The Lord will hear it. The word that is used there for agreeing together, again, remember, that's agreeing together in unity. In Greek, you know, from the Greek word, we get the English word symphony. Agreeing together, you know, from that root Greek word, we get the English word symphony. In other words, when our hearts reach a deep agreement and unity together, there is symphony. God from heaven says, Amen. You know, there's a symphony together of agreement. Okay? In order, you know, to put it very simply, a united church experiences God's power and a divided church does not experience God's power. So even during these last two years, ask yourself, you know, as a church, as a community, has there been more of a unity or has there been more of a disunity? So we've seen the resources for unity, the requirements of unity. Now let's look at the result of unity. What will be the signs that will show that here is a group of people that are united together? In verse 3, if you notice, you know, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Okay. The first thing that Paul says will be a sign that you have been united together. You recognize you are a part of a family together. The first thing is that you'll have a new attitude towards others. You'll have a new attitude towards others. There will be no more selfish ambition. In fact, the word in verse three is sometimes translated as "factions or strife." Okay, now don't do anything out of a competitive spirit that will destroy unity. But it's so easy to get that type of a group factions within the fellowship, isn't it? They can have two groups, and I say, hey, this is a newcomer, I'm an old comer, I've been here for a long time, I'm part of one group. This guy is a new guy, he's come from another group. Or they can have divisions between men and women. Or you can have divisions between a style of worship, more a traditional style, or a contemporary style. There are different, different factions that can come in. But Paul is saying over here, if we are saying we want to be united together. Then we must have a new attitude. There will be no more selfish ambition to say, "This is my group. This is totally our group. We are a team together." Secondly, he says, "No more vain conceit. No more vain conceit." And the phrase here translates a word that means arrogance. No more vain conceit. No more arrogance. So this is like you know a balloon full of hot air, and what happens? When you have a balloon full of hot air, it is just empty words, empty ideas, and there's a burst and it all spreads out to other individuals, hot air balloons filled with nothing, okay. He says, you have a new attitude to yourself, you don't think too great about yourself. You don't say this is my group and that's your group. No, you recognize you are of one family together. Secondly, you also have a new attitude toward yourself. Not only a new attitude towards others shows that you are really concerned about unity and you're working towards it and you're having it, but also a new attitude to yourself. He says over there, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. In humility, consider yourself better than others. There will be a new estimation of others. It is others first yourself last. Okay. When the King James uses the phrase for humility, it uses uh, this word where it says, lowliness of mind, lowliness of mind. And in classical Greek, it means to grovel before someone else. Okay. To grovel before someone else. And Paul uses this word, which is often used as a negative terminology and lifts it up, if you were to say, as a Christian virtue. When you're speaking about groveling on her, you know, uh, before someone else, you say, "You know, I'm nobody. Look here, you are the greatest." And you know, that's a negative understanding. Paul lifts that up and says, "To have a right estimate of yourself in the sight of God—that you are not somebody great, you are humble before God." Someone once asked Saint Augustine, "What is the first mark of true religion?" Humility, he replied. And then they asked, "What is the second mark?" Humility, he replied. And what was the third mark? Humility, he replied. In other words, true religion, true unity begins with humility, acknowledging your humility before God. Because unless we are willing to be humble before God and accept his lordship into our lives and say, we need you, Lord, I cannot do it without you, then only we start off our Christian walk. And then as we continue on in our Christian walk, we recognize we need one another in the fellowship, that we don't do it on our own and we cannot do it on our own. So the first step in humility is to admit that you need one another, to admit that you are a proud person, that you, to admit that you cannot do it on your own. In order to help us to find out whether we are truly humble. Here are some searching questions that you can ask yourself: to argue too much, whether others recognize my contribution? Am I secretly envious at the success of others? secretly rejoice at the misfortunes of others? Am I too conscious about what others think of me, when someone else gets rewarded for my work? How do I respond when someone gets rewarded for my work? Am I too quick to criticize others who are different from me? And how much time do I spend talking about myself? Is it easier? Is it becoming easier for me to say I was wrong? These are questions that we must honestly ask ourselves, and this would help us to recognize whether we are truly humble or not. Okay, so having said this about unity and humility, Paul now gives us an example. You may say, is it really possible for somebody to live in this type of a harmony, to live in this type of a relationship, you know? Paul gives us an example of Jesus to emulate. In verses 6 to 11, the classic passage which gives us an insight of who Jesus really is. A lot of people claim to believe in Jesus, but they don't have an idea much at all about who Jesus really is. And in these verses, verses 6 to 11, Paul gives us a detailed picture of who Jesus really is so that we can get an idea that he is the perfect example for us to follow. First of all, in verse 6, he speaks about what he was who being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be grasped who being in the form of god in the nature <coughs> that phrase would definitely mean that he was god himself okay it is a direct assertion of his deity he was truly equal with god okay he was truly equal with God. But he did not hold on to that. That's what it means when he says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He did not hold this position as something, look here, you know, you know, I'm not going to give this up. You know. But he was willing to be humble. He willingly laid it aside. He did not assert his rights, although he had the right to claim his rights. And that's what genuine humility is all about. A proud person will say, this is my right, how can I give this up? Jesus sets us the example. Did he have the right to say, no, I won't become man? Yes, he had the right. But set it aside. Was he really God so that he could give, uh, set that aside? Yes, he was really God. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, he was genuinely God right from the very beginning, but he was willing to lay it all aside. He did not hold on to it. What did he become? Verse 7 and 8 says, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. Okay. There are a lot of theological connotations over here. One word we can use is the incarnation Another word which people speak about is the emptying himself, the kenosis, the emptying theory, which people will come up with. But primarily, this is saying, in as some translations have put it, but made himself nothing. Yes, he was God, but he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. In other words, in contemporary terminology, we will say one who was a somebody was willing to become a nobody. One who was a somebody was willing to become a nobody. And that's what humility is all about, isn't it? Humility is not flaunting your somebody-ness, even though you are a somebody, but willing to become a nobody. He says he took on the very nature of a servant. In other words, he entered humanity at the lowest level, at the lowest level, at the level of a humble slave. And the Bible tells us that he became a man in human likeness, in human likeness. When Jesus was here on earth, nobody could say, hey, here's God going. No, they definitely saw a man. So that is the extent of his complete identification. He was God. He is God. When he came down to earth, he became a man, just like you and me. Okay and this is what he chose. This is what he chose. It was not entrusted upon him. This is what he chose willingly. And that is the example that God has set before us. Nobody has to force you to become humble. He says, if this is what God has done for you, the scripture is saying in this passage, okay, this is the example that you follow. You also follow in his steps. It says in verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, even death on a cross. I must remember when you're thinking about crucifixion, that was the most uh, uh, heinous, uh, for the worst criminal, that was the punishment that was given. It was not an easy punishment, isn't it? Today, often we have glorified the cross, or we have sanitized the cross and we have made the altar into a very ornate aspect. When you're thinking about the altar, Old Testament altar was actually a butcher's table, isn't it, you know, running with blood of the sacrifice. But today we have an altar which is so neatly polished and with all the trappings, and that's not the altar that the Old Testament speaks about. Today, when we speak about a cross again in our churches or people hang around their necks or put it on the wall, it is all a fancy cross. But that is not the cross when you're thinking about New Testament and our cross. It was a place of punishment. It was a place of punishment. Jesus came from the top and went to the bottom rung of the ladder no one was ever higher, and no one will go lower than he did. This is what he did willingly for us. That's the example that God has set before us. So if in case we say, oh, it's not possible, you know, look here, Jesus was just a man, When he came down to earth, you know, he was God also, he was 100% God and 100% man, but he chose to, he chose to, he gave up all his rights. And that's the expectation that God has for us. Now, when he did all this, what did he gain? And would we gain anything? In verses 9 to 11, he says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, Therefore, because of what Jesus was willing to do, the Father has exalted him to the highest place. Now it says he has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Does that mean that now the name is not higher? No, that's not the implication. The implication is one day every knee will bow, whether they like it or not. Today we bow willingly choose to follow or we willingly bow our knees to the Lord because of what he has done for us. But there is going to come a time when everybody, when he is the judge, when the Lord is the judge, everybody will have to bow before him. There's also another gaining that he has. When he, before he came down to earth, he was 100 percent God. When he came down to earth, he was God as well as man. When he has now ascended up to heaven, the manhood has still been retained. That's what the scripture tells us. We now have an advocate, a mediator with the Father, the man Christ Jesus. That's the additional gaining that has come to the Lord Jesus. Every knee shall bow, every knee shall con- confess. This is the Jesus of the Bible we worship today. Is this the same Jesus that you worship? If he is, then you follow his example. He has set the example for us. And he says, I'm there with you to help you. It is not an option. I want you to make sure that you're striving towards unity. God, even as He, Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer, that they would be one, even as we are one. So it's like scriptural injunction, the example from Jesus himself. And Jesus himself prays for that. Shouldn't we then make that as a high priority in our lives? In the next few verses, verses 12 to 18, then Paul gives us five commitments that we can make. In the light of what God has done, in the light of the example that Jesus has set for us, Paul gives us five important commitments that we can make to God. Okay, Verse 12, the first one. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even now more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first commitment that we can make is, I will do my part. Okay? This is what God has done. Now the commitment is, what are we going to do? Do we have a part to play? Yes. Paul says, work out your salvation, work out your salvation. Now, we may say, aren't we saved by grace through faith? What is Paul saying here when it says, you know, you have to work it out, work it out. Now, in the first century, the verb work out was used for mining silver. Workers would enter the mine and bring out the silver that was already there. This is what it means. In the same way. We are to work out the implications of salvation in every area of our life. Yes, Jesus is there inside of you. Now you work it out. You follow his example with the strength that he gives you. Are we willing to do that? To say, Lord, I'm willing to follow you with no strings attached, you know? I'm willing to follow you wherever you ask me to go, whatever you ask me to do. That is what it means to say, work out your salvation. He is there with you, giving you the strength, setting the example, and he says, now, I want you to you work it out, we commit ourselves to that even this morning, Lord, I will do my part. Thank you for the part that you have done for me. I will do my part. now." Verse 13, it is not just left up to us, you know, the commitment is, I will depend upon God to do this, okay? It is not to say, okay, this is what I have done now, what are you going to do about it? Would you take it up? Yes, we will take it up. But the Lord says, hey, you cannot take it up on your own. You cannot survive on your own. So this is why verse 13 says, for it is God who is working in you. Work out your salvation. Why? For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Enabling you to both to desire and to do his good purpose. This verse is very clearly tells us that God is the one who gives us both the will and the ability to do what he Commands. He changes our want to, and then He provides the power to obey. So God is saying over here, okay, if you are saying, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to focus on this, focus on unity, focus on my relationship with you, Lord, focus on my relationship with one another in the body, then the Lord says, okay, you know, I'm going to help you, I'm going to help you to work it out. Whatever God demands of us, He always supplies, isn't it? Whatever God demands of us, he always supplies. He meets that need. If he says, we are going to do this, he supplies us the strength for it. So the first commitment is, I will do my part. Second commitment is, I will depend on God. Okay. Third commitment, in the process of doing my part, I will not complain. I will not complain. Verse 14 tells us, do everything without grumbling and arguing, without grumbling and arguing. In the Greek word, arguing might be better translated as murmuring, murmuring, you know. When I think of the word murmur itself, you know, the sound itself will give you that feeling of that hiss sound to say, hey, this is something that is uh, blowing up, you know, one after the other. Think for a moment, the children of Israel, a million plus people murmuring against Moses and against God. What a chaotic scene it would have been. Now, do we understand that complaining is an attack on God's sovereignty? Every time you complain about your circumstances, you are really saying, if I were God, then I would do things differently. So, when we say I would not complain, what we are really saying is my focus is going to be on God. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to depend on him. And no matter what happens, I am not going to complain. That's a commitment that we need to make. Fourthly, the fourth commitment is that I will be different to make a difference. I will be different to make a difference. Verse 15 and 16, so that when we make this compl- and our commitment, okay, to say, I will do my part. God comes alongside and says, okay, I'm going to help you. you know, so we are saying, Lord, okay, I'm going to depend on you. And then when the things become tough, we are saying, Lord, I'm depending on you, so I won't complain at all. And then the focus becomes, I'm doing this because I want to make a difference. Verse 15 and 16 says, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Hold firmly the message of life. Blameless, pure, faultless. Okay? Blameless means above reproach. Nobody can you know, make a serious accusation against you stick. Pure means high quality, unmixed alloy. What you see is what you get. Okay? And faultless is like a sacrifice that is made to, before God without spot or without blemish. God wants us to make a difference in this world. Do you believe Do that? Scripture is telling us, if you are going to make this commitment to be different, then you will make a difference. How does Paul explain this word or describe this, word, this world to us? He says, we are living in a crooked and perverted generation. The word crooked from the comes from the Greek words, "kolios," from which we get the English words, koliosis, which is a curvature of the spine. The word perverted is much stronger and in essence means crooked by choice. So what Paul is saying over here, some people are messed up because they don't know any better while others live that way by choice choice by choice. So there are people in this world, okay? Some people, for whatever reason it has happened, they are living such lives. But some people deliberately choose to live that type of a life. So in this scenario, how can we make a difference? By deciding to be different, okay? How can you show someone that they are using a crooked stick for measurement with them, you know, and saying, Your stick is crooked. There is no, it isn't. You say, Yes, it is crooked. Look at it. You know, I say, No, it isn't. How can you show that your stick is crooked by putting side by side a straight stick, isn't it? That is how you can show them. That is how you can show them. How can you show to this crooked world that life is good following after Jesus by putting your life side by side and showing to them? So, if you make this commitment to say, I will be different, we are living in a high pressured world today. Relationships are breaking down, marriages are breaking down. How can you make a difference? When you say, I will be different with the help that God gives to me, so that when the crooked people in this world look at my life, they will realize, hey, there's a difference, there's a difference, and would want to share in that difference. Fifth commitment is, I will live for others. I will live for others. Verses 16 to 18 says, Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run in vain or labor for nothing. But even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you also should rejoice and share your joy with me. There's the fifth commitment we must make to live for others and not for self. If you notice, Paul here mentions about being poured out as a drink offering on behalf. That's the service that he's speaking about. That's the living for others that he's speaking about. And this refers to the Old Testament practice of pouring wine on top of an animal sacrifice so that the heat of the fire immediately vaporizes the wine, turning it into a beautiful aroma. So what he's saying is, even if I end up losing my life for you, it won't matter to me as long as you live for Christ, you live for Christ. He says, I'm willing to give up my life as long as you are going to be benefited, as long as you are going to continue in your walk with God. That's the commitment that we need to make. Look at these five commitments again. And ask yourself this morning, would you be willing to make those commitments during these uncertain times so that your life can be filled with unstoppable joy, that you will do your part that God is asking you to do, to work out your salvation, that which is in you will come out, God will work it out inside of you, that for this, you will continue to depend on God, not dependence upon yourself, thinking that you can make it, no constant dependency on god and when things don't work out the way you think should complain you will make it your life focus in this crooked world to live the straight life so that to make a difference and your life purpose would be even if you have to be poured out as a sacrifice even if you have to give up your life in service for others you will continue to live for others because you want to make a difference In the life of others for you. Moving on in verses 19 to 30, Paul gives us further example from his friends. From his friends. He gave us an example from Jesus. Now, in these verses, he gives us an example from his friends. Remember, friends are very important. Friends are very important. Who are your friends? Your friends are important because we tend to. Become like the people we associate with. Yourself with complainers, pretty soon you'll also start to complain. If your friends are selfish, your their attitude will rub on to you. Friends are only talking about money and fame and pleasure. That's going to rub on to you. Noble, their nobility will make you noble too. Castles. Who are my friends? Howard Hendricks says that a Christian man needs three men in his life a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Paul represents your spiritual mentor, Barnabas, a close personal friend, and Timothy, a disciple who looks to you for leadership. So we need mentors, we need friends, and we need disciples to be well rounded Christians. Do you have these in your life? whom you looking up to? Do you have someone who is following after you and do you have the right type of friends who are encouraging you? So five lessons that we can learn or five principles from his friends. Number one, the first principle in verses 19 to 21 speaks about Timothy and he speaks about it in verse 19 where it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The first principle, first lesson from Timothy is put before prophets, put people before prophets. Remember Timothy came from a mixed marriage and uh, his father was Greek and uh, would have been an unbeliever, his mother as well as his grandmother were Jewish converts to Christianity. But over time, Paul has trusted Timothy so completely that he could send him as a replacement. Or If he couldn't go somewhere, he would send Timothy. Because he says in verse 20, there is no one like him. There is no one like him. Or like-minded in Greek, where we said earlier, means same-souled same soul that was his heart that was his heart the same heart of paul timothy had okay he was considered paul's close okay now in the world that we live in you know the world is looking for winners okay the world is looking for winners how can you make profits how can you use people to your own ends how can you climb on somebody else to reach to the top but God. There's no question of winners. God is looking for servants. God is looking for servants. And when we get to heaven, we are not going to be asked if we were winners or losers. What is going to be asked when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, good and faithful servant. Today we place such a lot of value on positions and titles. That's not what God is looking for. God is not looking for all those external trappings of the prophets of having climbed up the Christian ladder. God is looking for people who would be interested in serving people. Well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what Paul saw in the heart of Timothy. A one who was same souled who had the same heart that Paul had, who put people before prophets. Secondly, in verses 22 and 24, to twenty-four, the second truth that we learn about Timothy is that he put character before conformity, character before conformity. Verse 22 says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He says over here, Timothy, has proved himself, has proved himself. In other words, means that he has passed the test, He has passed the test. okay. How did he pass the test? You know? Paul has observed him. Paul has observed him. His willingness maybe to take up the hard jobs, his willingness to do all that you know, uh, Paul has asked him to do, his faithfulness in doing the little things as well as the big things. Not just saying, you know, I'm second in command, I want this leadership. No, no. His willingness to serve. And remember, proving does not happen overnight. Producing Christian character does not happen overnight. Over time, overnight. It takes time as well as effort. So, the lesson from you know, Timothy is put people before prophets. Lesson from Timothy is put character before conformity. Let character be your focus, You know, not a question of, okay, I want to be pleasing to everybody so that I get a well acclaim from everybody. No, no, he's not a man pleaser. His concern is, Lord, when you look at me, I want you to say, here's a person who is approved by God. And that's what Paul also mentions, isn't it? He says, study, show yourself approved by God. And that is what is something we must be looking for or aiming for. Paul could approve of Timothy. The question would be, can God approve, put a seal of approval upon us to say, here's a person whose heart is after me, whose character is very important to him or her. That is a, a thing that we need to commit ourselves to. Then in verse 25, you know, he introduces us to another person by the name of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, Verse twenty five he says, But I think it is necessary to send back to you Ephaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. Look at how he you know, addresses Ephaphroditus. Remember he sent from the church at Philippi to you know, with a gift to meet the needs of Paul who is in prison and also to inquire and to help him out in his time of need. So he says over here, Aphroditus is my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, also your messenger. Okay. We don't know anything about Ephaphroditus. He didn't hold any uh, uh, position in the church at Philippi. He was not the pastor of the church at Philippi. He was not an elder over there. But here was Paul addressing him as a fellow worker, a fellow soldier a fellow brother, you know, Epaphroditus, remember, the name itself would suggest that he has a Greek name, it's not a Jewish name. But Paul is saying he's a brother, you know, the Greek word over there is Adelphos which means coming from the same womb. So what Paul is saying, he's a Gentile, I'm a Jew, you know, but we are brothers together. And that is what he was focusing on, he says, learn from Epaphroditus that it is not competition, but teamwork that really makes the difference. And how will teamwork make the difference if you are willing to hold the other person in the highest esteem? If Paul would have said, who oh, is Epaphroditus? Or when he came with a gift, he said, thank you, Epaphroditus, you can go back now. I don't need you. Then there would have not been no teamwork. But Paul was an individual who was encouraging teamwork. No matter whatever background you may be in, you are part of the same family, coming from the same womb. We are fellow brothers together. I'm calling you as a fellow servant. I'm calling you as a faithful soldier. All teamwork in you know, a terminology is to say we are in the same thing together. So let's not compete. Let's not compete. Paul was willing to give uh, uh, that credit for Epaphroditus. You know. And if also was willing to give that due to Paul, he did not say, look, I've come all the way, so I need some credit from you. No, no, no. He recognized we are all in it together. And the scripture teaches us over there in verses 26 and 27, where he says, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Example from Epaphroditus, not only was he a good team player together with Paul, but he says over here, he was more concerned for the kingdom rather than for his own comfort. His kingdom rather than for his own comfort. Traveling from Philippi to Rome wouldn't have been easy. It was an 800 mile journey by boat. And when Epaphroditus got to Rome from this whole long journey, he fell sick with a very grave disease and he nearly died. That we can learn from Epaphroditus is, which is important to you, the work for the kingdom or your comfort? Are you saying I will be in my own comfort zone? I don't want to get out anywhere. I don't want to trouble myself anywhere. Or would you be like if Aphrodite to say, Lord, your kingdom matters. And even if it is still the point of death, I'm willing to give myself for the kingdom. How far are you willing to go for the Lord? How far are you willing to go for the Lord? Then in verses 28 to 30, 28 to 30, we read, Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad that I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Because he almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ. Risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Risking his life. He was not concerned of what was going to happen to him. He was not looking at security. He was not looking at security. Oftentimes. When we think about our future, we think about security, isn't it? I want to keep my future secure. So we work on so many different different options to keep ourselves secure. And as a result, our service for God, we say, hey, no, that's not security. I won't be secure in Christian ministry, so I'm not going to be involved in Christian ministry. I would rather be involved in somewhere else. where We'll have a security. for well, if favorite is? He says security is not the issue. The issue is service for God, service for God. And that is why Paul, when he sends Epaphroditus back, he says, here's a great guy, here's a great guy who really is willing to risk his life, he is really willing to risk his life. The Greek word that is used here is parabolodomai, which you know, was used in the in the early church times you know, for a group of people who are called as parabo bola nai These were Christian you know, men and women who during the Emperor Constantine, you know, were able to minister to the sick and the imprisoned and the outcasts, individuals whom nobody was willing to look after. They stepped in, they stepped out of their comfort zone. They were willing to say, I'm willing to risk my life for what I believe in, for the service of the kingdom. Ask yourself, when was the last time You took yourself out of your comfort zone for the sake of the gospel. When was the last time you took yourself out from your comfort zone? Ask yourself these five areas. People before prophets, or when you're thinking about your future, you're looking at what is in it for me? How much am I going to gain for me? Or are you looking forward for that well done, good and faithful servant? And you're looking ahead for that. And every day that you live, you're living a life of commitment to say, Lord, relationships are important. I will work on helping people. Secondly, character first, not what others think of me and playing the game according to their expectations, but making sure I live for you, that my character is right before you. Would you work on teamwork building to recognize you are part of a family rather than fighting within each other and breaking the, the, the fellowship and the unity? teamwork? Would you put kingdom before comfort? Would you be willing to step out of comfort zone, step out of your security areas for the service of the kingdom? Let me close with this statement by Oswald Chambers, who remarked, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Let me say that again, when you fear God, you fear nothing else. When you think about the uncertain times today, if you fear God, then you don't have to fear those uncertain times. But if you don't fear God, if God is not the number one person in your life, then what will happen? Fear will grip you all the time, but always be afraid. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, and fear will always be gripping you. Let me encourage you this morning to make those five commitments before God. You say, Lord, with your help, this is what I'm going to do. And as God gives you the strength, continue each day in your growth, in your fear of God, so that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Let's bow our heads in prayer together.